Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is none other than author, illustrator, raconteur, Terry Denton. Terry, welcome. Oh, well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Magda. It's, um, it's fun to be here. Now, I know this is going to be a little tricky and I've pre-warned you. Um, Wombat and Fox is visual as well as verbal. But a lot of the people who are listening into the show may not have read the books, and I'd love to give them just a bit of a feel. So before we begin chatting, can I get you to just read a little bit from the latest book, Thrill Seeker? Uh, look, I'll have a crack at it. You just stopped me when you had enough. <laughs> well, um, I, won't, I won't interrupt you to stop you, but just to sort of come to some kind of end, and when I feel the pause is strong enough, I'll jump in. All right. That sounds good. Um, this little bit I'm going to read to you is, is, is from the third story. It's uh, when they go to the uh, swimming, local swimming pool. Um, uh, it's time, said Wombat. What time, asked Fox. 3.41, said Wombat. So, it's time for the high diving tower. Are you coming? Me, said Fox. Are you kidding? Devil is in Wombat. The devil is in Wombat. And so is Comrade Fox. I am. You are. Well, said Fox. They climbed up the 32 steps to the first level. This will do, said Fox. No, said Wombat, it has to be wild and dangerous. We have to go to the very top. They climbed the final steps to the very top. All three crept to the edge of the tower. Mm, said Wombat. Gosh, said Devil. Ah, said Fox. I'm a Wombat of wild and dangerous deeds, said Wombat. He left off the tower. Splash. Devil followed close behind Wombat. Splash. They waited, but there was no third splash. The five monkeys climbed the tower. Hurry up, Fox, said the oldest monkey. You're holding up everyone else. Just jump, scaredy cat, said the middle monkey. I don't think I want to jump either, said the youngest monkey. Wombat and Devil climbed back to the top of the tower. Wombat growled at the five monkeys. Jump, said Devil, and he bared his teeth. He had a very impressive set of sharp fangs, and the monkeys didn't stay around to find out how sharp they all, all together they jumped, even the youngest monkey. Splash, 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 splash. Now, Fox, said Wombat, let's try again. Fox said nothing. Wombat took a close look at his friend. Fox was, Fox was frozen with fear. Not cold frozen, not just couldn't move frozen, but frozen to the spot frozen. Wombat shook Fox gently. He tapped him on the cheek. Fox didn't flinch. Devil blew in Fox's ear. He didn't even blink. Comrade Fox, I know you can hear Devil. He's going to give you a song to break you out of this spell. And Devil whispered into Fox's ear. Flippity diddle, flippity dee, forget your fear and look at me. But Fox stayed frozen. Wombat and Devil stayed with Fox at the top of the high diving tower. Every now and then they tried something new, a pinch, a twig of the nose, a tickle, a poke, but nothing worked. Fox was stuck on top of the high diving tower, frozen with fear all through that afternoon. Elephant suggested they splash water on Fox. She let him have a whole trunk full, but it had no effect. Croc suggested they stand a box in a bucket of water. That did no good either. The 20 little penguins suggested they all peck him. That will surely wake him, said the big penguin, but it didn't. And when the sun was setting, the hippo sisters insisted Wombat and Devil carry Fox down to the ground. But getting Fox down to the very steep steps was too difficult. Devil has an idea, said Devil. Move Comrade Fox to the edge and everybody stand back. Devil stood just behind Fox and whispered another song into his ear. And then with a great big shove, Devil pushed Fox off the tower. Ah, splash! And that sort of... Um, Probably a good space to stop that one. Yeah, that was great. And I, I really did get a sense of the visuals. 
Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, and I, I noticed that you picked the passage, and I'm glad that you did, which has just about every character in it. Oh, uh, yeah, yep. Yeah, I, it's um, one of the exciting things about those books for me is, is developing that, you know, that sort of, um, like that family of characters. Uh, um, and, and using them, you know, they each have their own peculiarities, and being able to draw them in when I like is, is kind of fun. Um, but it's, it's building up that that sort of, um, what would you call it, like a retinue of characters. Um, and it gives a sort of depth to the stories too, I think. Sure, their backstories or what have you. Yeah, and, and gradually I can I can explore each character in, in subsequent stories. Um, uh, do you find that... Do you find that they change much from story to story? Um, I think it took me um, that first book to work really work out um, the characters of the Walmart and Fox, get them sitting sitting well. Um, Croc is the other ones tend to be more one dimensional in a way. Um, Croc is um, and Croc is very much like you know sort of the, the three year old sister or or brother that's uh, incredibly annoying and full of energy and um, the hippo sisters I kind of enjoy, but again, they're kind of one-dimensional in that they're, they're people who love uniforms and love barking orders and that kind of thing. Um, I introduced in this book a new character, which is a Tasmanian devil, and I really got into him. He was a good character. And do you feel that Tasmanian devils are kind of underused in literature? Well, yeah, well, the only really other Tasmanian devil I know of used a lot was within the, the Warner Brothers cartoons that I loved when I was a child. Um, and that was pretty one-dimensional character too. It is, and uh, it's so funny because I think most Americans think of Tasmanian devils as being like this little spinning kind of, yeah. you know, tornado character. <laughs> oh, he's a fantastic character in in that in in those cartoons. I used to love him when I was a child. But he's um, just kind of magic, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And and having seen really, I mean, Tasmanian devils down in in the wild, they are. Um, they have really ordinary critters. <laughs> they're pretty, uh, pretty. Um, they're sort of uh, no nonsense kind of characters, you know. They, they don't seem to take any muck from anyone. Yeah, well, there's those teeth, of course. <laughs> those teeth are pretty wild. <laughs> so well, I've heard them. I've heard them sort of, uh, you know, yelling in, in the forest, and they're um, and it comes up actually, you know, they're scowling. They're sort of like scowling, snarling, spitting cats, but but even more dangerous. They're interesting characters. Yeah, so, I mean, is it, um, you know, it's a little bit against type to make a Tasmanian devil so sage? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I guess what I liked about him was he's, he's kind of a no-nonsense character, and he's, he's also got a sort of a touch of some kind of old lefty or something about him, too. He calls everybody comrade, and <laughs> um, so it's kind of interesting kind of mixture, and, and I, I guess the thing I liked about him is he also had his own language, his own way of expressing himself. Yes. Um, we explored. I explored a little bit years ago when I was working on Liftoff TV series, and we we had a series of um, characters called backpacks, and they hang. They sat on the back of kids' backs and walked around and chatting as they went, and their whole world view was was of things receding from them as they walked. So they had this backward language that matched that. And I kind of like that idea of playing with um, a character's sort of individual language. Mm. Now, how did the Wombat and Fox series come about? Um, I had done the Gasp series, which I, I kind of loved, and, and um, then I had did a series called Story Maze, 
but I wanted to do a series that had that feel of um, those beautiful um, frog and toad stories. Uh, do you know those? Oh, you... Frog and Toad of Friends, um, written by Tommy Ungerer, I think it was. Okay. Or Arnold Lobel, I can't remember which. It's ringing a bell. Yeah, sort of from the 50s. But they were back, essentially they are just stories about a frog and a toad who were good friends and did stuff together. And I guess I've always liked those stories, but I've also liked that key thing, um, you know, how important friendship is to kids in particular. In fact, I was reading a famous quote from someone recently who said, you know, that friendship is actually the crown, the crown thing of humanity in a way. It's, it's the great achievement humanity friendship and I thought yeah that was a really lovely way to put it um, so I just wanted to do something that was about the friendship of two characters and I, I decided I always love Wombats from going down to Wilson's prom camping down there and I thought well, what would be good to put opposite a Wombat would be something that was a feral animal um, and, and foxes I've also run into a lot in the bush um, and they're very sort of jumpy um, kind of almost the opposite of a Wombat in a way in, in in their um, sort of energy level, so I like the idea of putting those two together, and then from then it was just a matter of exploring how their different characters were, you know, how different their characters were, and and let that evolve. So it probably took me a year to just puddle around with them, working with Eric and my my editor publisher. And I have to admit that I'm I'm rather a fan of the monkeys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the monkeys are actually me and my four brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, uh, I, don't, I don't think I've actually ever told them that. So, um, <laughs> so you uh, that to them now. Pardon? Uh, it's a revelation for them now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's uh, it's that uh, I love. Um, not a lot of stories have been written about brothers. It's something I'm kind of moving towards eventually. But um, just having the five of us there, and it's you know in our house it was always very loud and obnoxious and busy and. Um, a lot of putting down of each other, really. <laughs> and in a way, they have that energy of, 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 uh, of my brothers. So they're kind of a, a favourite of mine, too. I, I feel, though, maybe this is just me, but I always imagine them speaking with a kind of Hindu accent. There's almost a formality in their English. That's interesting, yeah. I hadn't, hadn't picked that up. Yeah. Maybe it's just the brothers, the way they refer to one another as brothers, and they seem to talk in you know, quite a formal way. Yeah. Well, I must read that again and, and have a think about that. Try it next time somebody asks you to read it live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. So tell me about your process. Do you tend to write and draw the stories simultaneously, or do you sort of start with the pictures and add the words, or the other way around? Um, the really difficult part of any, any writing process for me is, is getting that initial idea and building on it. So what I spent a lot of time doing was just drawing the characters and getting a sense of what, how I wanted the wombat to look and how I wanted the fox to look. And I started doing little comic strips of them doing stuff. Um, at different times they were trying to earn a living, so they were carrying things around the city and on uh, sort of like uh, wheelbarrows and things, and, and just getting a sense of how they worked together uh, with no real idea of, you know, no great sort of strong, I hadn't written a really strong idea of who they were at that point. I was just going to let that come out of the process. So, yeah, that started kind of visually. And then I launched into a process where I just start writing stuff and, and putting little little really stick figures next to them and uh, trying to build up story ideas. 
and it took probably six months before I had anything that worked fairly, you know, reasonably well. Um, just because you know, I'm, I mean, there's not a lot of time spent in that six months. Not as much as you'd imagine. But a lot of thinking time, but but putting down ideas, thinking, no, that doesn't work, and trying something else and writing something else, no, that doesn't work. Showing it to Erica and she'll say, yeah, it's not quite there yet. Um, and eventually, at some point, the characters kind of gel, and then it's quite easy to uh, to write the final stories. And what I tend to do when I'm writing final stories is I storyboard them out uh, with words, but allow the visuals to, to drive the story. Mm. Now, one of the things I've found a constant through your work um, is a kind of irreverence. Um, text, particularly um, an irreverence with the text, it's meant to be stretched. I'm thinking particularly of the Story Maze series. Oh, yeah. Yep. Do, you, do you feel that you know kids, maybe adults too, um, need to feel less reverence for literature and you know sort of plunge into it a bit more, thinking you know play with it, have fun with it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look. Um, I, I sure do. Um, I, I sit with my kids and I, I watch uh, TV with them, um, and I see what what happens on TV. And not everything on TV is wonderful, but but the rules for television are very different to the rules for literature. And when I worked on that liftoff program as well, that came across really strongly. Um, and when I did Gasp, I wanted something that was kind of loud and obnoxious and highly energetic. And when I did Story Maze, I was trying to do that as well and build a strong visual stream into it. And uh, they're probably not as successful as I, I would have liked them to have been. Um, I, mean, I didn't achieve quite what I wanted with those. I'm still working on that idea. But I think it's got to have high energy. And it does have to be, um, I don't know, just, just not too reverent, yes. Um, but you know, I also think you know, there's a body of literature too, then, and some literature is extremely reverent, and that's a good thing, and very worthy, and has powerful, uh, you know, um, uh, moral it's trying to make or, or message in it. And some is not. Some is is extremely playful, and uh, it's, it's playing with the idea of thinking. Yeah, I just think about my um, son being told for years by his teachers to you know stop putting code at the back of his stories. <laughs> <laughs> And not not actually, you know, giving the the reader three choices for the ending. Yeah, yeah, and and that's I your doing. <laughs> it can be so playful. Um, why 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 not make it as playful as possible? You know, and that's humour too, I suppose. You know, humour is a humour asks you to be playful in a way. Um, and again, I look at TV comedy and um, and see how how the rules are constantly bent by by comedy and by my stand up stuff, I suppose, as well. So, you know, I, I'm really interested in that whole area of humour. And working with Andy has actually been really good with, for that too because we're often talking about humour and and what works and what doesn't work and how far you can push things. Um, but I, I really love that idea of the playfulness of the, of the story made books and hopefully that comes through with the, um, with the Walmart and Fox, you know, probably not as strongly, but... Um, it's that playfulness that I'm pushing towards. I'm trying to write at the moment a, a kind of kids, a kids sort of diary story in a way, which relates to my own childhood um, incidents from that. And um, I also want that to be extremely playful and have that kind of very strong visual and verbal um, those sort of twin through lines. 
and, and I think if I were to come up with, I mean, you've done a lot of work and you've done very varied work, but I, I guess humorous is probably the one word that would sum it all up. Is there a serious side too, do you think? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, and I've been, I've actually, I've, I've had a lot of difficulty the last couple of years um, getting the time to concentrate enough on, on that more serious stuff. And, and I, I sort of look back on books like Felix and Alexander, which I felt, you know, is, is a very strong book and quite a serious book in some ways. And um, I'd like to do that kind of thing. I've been reading a lot of myths and legends lately and um, actually reading a lot of Jung as well. And uh, and um, just getting that, getting a sort of a desire to, to write some of, some stuff like that, you know, some certain one, to, to write stuff that has um, quite a strong, serious, and um, an important kind of uh, presence, if you like, which I felt Felix Alexander did. Um, you did it a bit in Story Maze too, though. I mean, certainly um, there was Ithaca. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, oh, I loved playing with all of that um, the Greek mythology. Um, and it's something that really does interest me. Yeah, so I, I, I can see in the next few years I would like to do a, um, two or three picture books that um, that draw on a lot of that. Uh, you know, draw on mythology, draw on on fairy tales mm. that have uh, you know some kind of um, I don't quite find the right word to describe it at the moment, but um, maybe a, just have, a deep kick or something. Yeah, yeah. And they might still have a, a, a bit of humour about them. I, I've been looking at uh, William Steig's work, and I love Dr. DeSoto, but I've been looking at some of his other work too, Boris and Amos and things like that. And and that's a lot of his work is that. Mm. Very strong kind of um, under underbelly to it, really. Now, now on the flip side, um, and you do a lot of collaborations, has anybody ever wanted you to do something that you just felt was you know, just too wacky. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of Billy the Baked Bean Kid. Um, I have an example. Yeah, well, that was, <laughs> that was pretty wacky. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I haven't had anyone who's given me anything too wacky. Um, a, a lot of stuff that is um, kind of out there but not particularly clever or funny. You know, there's a lot of um, you know, poo and fart kind of humour that comes around. Um, Billy the Bank Binky, I just thought was an interesting, kind of fun story. Um, and from some of mine, like Victor Callahan, it was really interesting, kind of, uh, that came from him. But there's actually not that many really good stories that I get offered to me, really, especially funny ones. It's... Um, which is part, kind of partly why I'm, I'm not doing many at the moment. I'm, I'm trying to develop my own. Um, so it's the other way around. You want to do the wacky stuff. Uh, say it again? It's the other way around. You're the one that brings the wackiness to the table. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I, I'm often put in a place where I have, have um, stories that just need a bit of a kick along, a, a, a sort of the, use the drawings to give it a whole lot more humour. Um, that's often something that is said to me, um, which is not always easy to do. It's got to be there in the words. 
So how do your collaborations come about? Are they sort of hatched over a friendly dinner or is it formally? How, how do you tend to make those connections? Generally, it comes talking... It just comes through publishers generally. You know, publishers will ring me up saying we've got this manuscript. Uh, I like what Billy the Baking Kid. We've got this uh, Victor Callahan story. We think you'll like it. Uh, we think you're the right one for it. Um, can we send it to you? And if I like it, you know, I'll, I'll, we we sort of go further. With Andy, we tend to sit together at the beginning and think, um, okay, what are we going to do? So we we went away for a week and we came up with this book called um, What Bummer Saw Is That, and we also sat down. Um, I suppose for the best part of a year, you know, once or twice a month and um, sitting on a table opposite each other doing uh, The Cat on the Mat was Flat uh, and The Bad Book. So that there, uh, we really enjoy that because you know, we'll talk about humour a lot um, and it's a really, really enjoyable process. It has to be an enjoyable process or you wouldn't do it. Um, at the moment I'm working with um, very beginnings with Mark Greenwood who's from Frio Fremantle, and um, we're working on a, a story which uh, has a connection to an Aboriginal um, story, so we're uh, collaborating on that together. And so we just doing mainly, mainly by email, that one. You've, you've collaborated with Mark Greenwood before, haven't you? No. Okay. No. And I know him fairly well from going over there. My daughter was studying in, in Perth, so I would go over there each year, and we, we met each other a bit. But we were, we were at a CBC, a Children's Book Council dinner one one night just last last year and we just started chatting about this and eventually we decided, ah, we could do this together. Now, Which, you know, that's good. Your work, I have to ask you this, your work has always reminded me, in a clean way, um, of the old underground comics of Robert Crumb. <laughs> Are you a fan? Yeah, I am. He's kind of scary too. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I am, yeah. I, I didn't, know him that well when I was um, at university studying architecture. I, so I, few people were Crumb fans. I didn't see his work much then. But later on, I've sort of uh, looked at him and um, and really do like his, his program. Of course, that uh, totally um, sort of naughty side to him. That totally he goes pretty far. <laughs> yeah, he does. He goes as far as it's possible. And I've, I've seen that because there's a movie about him too. Uh, he and his brother, I think it is, in in, a, in their flat, and that's pretty seedy. <laughs> Interesting character. Do you, do you sometimes feel? I I I've always felt reading Robert Crumb that you know there's a part of him that kind of visualizes and records his life as a comic. Do you sometimes feel like your life as a comic? Yeah, it's something that my kids are often saying. Um, you know, they'll say. You know, I can't remember exactly how they put it, but it's like, oh God, it's like you're in one of your own cartoons at the moment. It's just um, there is a kind of, I do like to play around with ideas a lot, and um, and I will do that at home, and the kids can get very tired of that. Oh, they kind of enjoy it because they do it themselves as well. But it is it is a very this strong visual and humorous side that comes through all the time in my behaviour, and it's something that. When I was talking about the five, uh, the five monkeys, you know, when I go right back to my childhood, it was like that with my brothers too. You know, our, our family around the table was a very loud and obnoxious, and and ideas sort of flying in all directions. Um, so I think, yeah, that's it's just my way of thinking, and that's why, you know, the more I write, the more I realise that the verbal and visual together is the way to write because I have such a strong visual start, side to me. Do, do you get much inspiration from your children? Um, 
in the way that I, I, I watch them, I mean, they're growing up now, but <clears throat> I was lucky I was at home all the time when they were growing up, working in the back of the house. And uh, so I saw an awful lot of them. And, and what I love about them even now is they take you to a place that I, you know, that I wouldn't go to with myself. So I was sitting down recently watching uh, The Mighty Boosh with my kids, um, something that Andy, a TV series that Andy has shown me at some stage and said, you should look at this, and I didn't like it much. Sitting with my kids, I actually found a way into it and really enjoyed it. And they they bring a lot of things in front of me that wouldn't happen otherwise. Not a, not only sort of TV shows, but, but visual stuff and music and and ideas that just float across from them like from an alien world. So, you know, I, I, I like having them around. I like um, trading blows with them, really. And keeping the madness going. Yeah, well, it, it is. Keeping the madness going is pretty true. Um, and I guess one day they won't be there and I, I might have to, um, I don't know what I'll do then, <laughs> to buy, buy children or free in lodges. Buy them and bring them home from your school visits. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, actually, an interesting thing, I think, is that school visits, I find really exhausting, but they also are really uh, valuable because they take me again to that place where kids, where kids are, um, where I may not be at the moment as much as I was when I was a kid, and um, and that's a really valuable thing. So I, I still love doing my school visits just to get a sense of where kids are at and what what makes them laugh and what doesn't, and trying ideas out on them. And I suppose playing with them actually, it's like a tennis game sometimes in the sessions where I'm throwing ideas and they're coming back at me with others. Any, has anybody ever um, sort of stumped you, or um, you know, do you have an anecdote about um, a situation that was quite tricky? Um, <laughs> not so much stumped me. Um, well, <laughs> uh, there's one one thing that happened one day which really floored me. Where I had been drawing um, lots of drawings of kids and babies and things and um, a long session at the end this girl came up and says Mr. Dan I want I want to have your baby <laughs> oh wow you know she was five years old I was like oh that's a, a really score to hit with this one <laughs> that's right. well you know you're succeeding when you get that at but, the end of the well show. yeah she was she was referring to the picture of the baby I'd drawn I'd drawn, I'd drawn. I had drawn I didn't she wanted the picture yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's really floored me Yes, I can imagine. Um, have you found, has your audience changed much to, over the years? I mean, you've been visiting schools for quite a while now. Oh, yeah, I reckon they're so much more sophisticated than they were when I started. Um, they understand so much more, so much earlier. Um, I mean, something I've, I've noticed with my own kids, but, um, but going to schools, I think, I think we constantly underestimate what kids understand and um, it's something when I worked on liftoff, we played with that idea a lot that kids kids actually understood uh, a lot more than we give them credit for. And and I know that um, in my school sessions, it's something I'm always learning. Um, they just they just get stuff because you know they watch so much television and 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 uh, are shown so many things. Uh, we weren't shown at the same age. So they are very sophisticated. What worries me, of course, is, is that that time for play is less. Um, and I think that's a real shame that uh, I had a childhood where, which was pretty open, we had so much time for play, for just free thinking, you know, to actually get bored and have to make up 
things to do, whereas um, I'm not so sure it happens so much these days. Uh, it's a busy world. Yes, and I suppose even our toys are so sophisticated nowadays that um, they don't leave much open. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. My kids probably, again, were pretty lucky because um, they they just seem to, well, they seem to have a very creative life and um, sort of big backyard and, and uh, sand pits and all that kind of stuff. But um, not all kids have that. Mm. For sure. Now, tell me, um, is there a project, we're, we're sort of nearing the end, but is there a project you'd always love to work on? You mentioned um, some of the serious work or something out of left field that you've been itching to do. Um, well, the, the um, thing I was doing with Mark Greenwood is, is about the Chandamara story. Do you know the Chandamara story? Yeah, vaguely. Um, yeah, um, something set in uh, northwestern uh, Western Australia. And uh, that's a story I have wanted to do for quite some time, and, and we're we're going up to that country together in a few weeks' time to to explore it. Um, other than that, um, there's there's a couple of books that kind of um, I love doing books that are big and colourful with very detailed drawings in them, um, you know, scenes, busy scenes, and I want to do a book like that, just playing with um, a bit like in Spooner or Later and Duck for Cover, those books, mm. that kind of thing. And and the fairy tale thing, you know, trying to write just a couple of stories that um, they really uh, have have some strong impact on me. They come from very deep down, I guess, in, in me. That's what I want to explore as well. I'm doing a lot of painting these days, and I think I'm drawing out of that painting um, sort of a... a from deeper, from the deeper well, if you like, and that's where I'd like to explore the next five years, maybe, is playing with them. I haven't got anything specific in mind, but just drawing some of those deeper stories out. Mm. Oh, well, we'll look forward to it. Yeah, so will I. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is all the time that we have for today, so thank you very much for coming, Terry. That's a pleasure. Our next guest will be Paul Berman, the author of The Snowing and Greening of Thomas Passmore. He has actually been here before to talk about uh, The View From Here, which is uh, a website he works with um, somebody else on that was also on the show. But this time he's coming on his own, and he will simply be talking about his novel. So uh, we'll see you then. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.